Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a very special bonus episode on One Heat Minute Productions. I am your host and producer, Blake Howard. Uh, look, thank you so much for your continued support. This is a very special bonus episode. I occasionally uh, get a chance to speak to filmmakers about films that are being released rather than our normal uh, reflective look backs on you know, classics or underappreciated gems that we're exploring. And uh, Scott Derrickson is a filmmaker that I have been interested in and following for about a decade. Um, really, for me, it wasn't his terrific exorcism of Emily Rose that really kicked off my love affair with him as a filmmaker and as just a personality, but his movie Sinister from 2012 starring Ethan Hawke is truly one of the, a, a, a true horror masterpiece. I, I love it unabashedly and enduringly, and uh, it's just a mesmerizing film that has really stuck with me and one of my favorite films of that year. His latest film, The Black Phone, adapted from the Joe Hill short story, uh, co-written the screenplay by he and his frequent writing partner, C. Robert Cargill, a true film geek turned good, is out now in Australian theaters. Um, It's out all over the place. It's been out in the States. It's been kicking goals, making a huge amount of cash over there and has just hit premium video on demand in the United States. I got a chance to talk to him about his terrifically successful and deeply personal film and I got to talk to him about his influences and we just got to talk about a whole bunch of things as well as, you know, iconic horror movie making of the tallest, tallest order. So this is a terrific chat. I had a terrific time talking to him. You must see The Black Phone. If you're in Oz, go see it out right now. If you're in the States, jump onto iTunes. You can buy it right now or whatever your preferred um, purchasing platform for video on demand or just go and see it in the theater. Um, it is a, a terrific film, beautifully personal, terrifying, great piece of genre filmmaking produced by the great folks at Blumhouse. And uh, I'm really thankful to Universal Pix Oz for giving me the chance to talk to Scott because he's a lovely man and uh, I hope you really enjoy the interview. Now, without any further ado, the terrific Scott Derrickson. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing excellent, thank you. Uh, it's awesome to chat to you. Uh, I'm a big admirer of your work, and we're mutual friends with the great Walter Chaw. So um, that's uh, oh that's the, a, the the one and only. The that's one great. And, the one and only, right? So I, I thought, you know, there's my six degrees of separation uh, uh, well, for you. You couldn't have a, a better <laughs> uh, a better link than Walter. That's good. You got your credibility. We just went up ten thousand points. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Look, I just want to say, firstly. God, I love this movie. It's terrific. Uh, well, given your sweatshirt and the amazing array of posters <laughs> behind you, I, I, I'm, I'm taking it as a high compliment. That's oh, great. Oh, look, I'm, I'm glad. That, that's why I leave the camera on. So I, I, was, I was like, what sweatshirt do I wear today? Well, I'm going to talk to Scott today. Let's, let's bring you know, out the big, there, bring there, out the big there guns. Are, the, there are there are a lot of filmmakers who would not be as impressed by your selections behind you, but but boy, you're you're a man after my own heart. Clearly, listen, I know how many interviews you've done for this great film. I know how successful the film is. I know how now lucky we are in Oz to get a chance to see it on the big screen. I know it's already had a, a phenomenal run in the state. So congratulations on the film's success. So I'm and, Thanks and so I much. and I also 
of course, because I'm friends with Walter and I follow you both, um, have consumed your work there. So I might, I'm gonna this. I'm, I'm gonna try and make this uh, fun for us because I, I'm gonna firstly ask you a couple of questions uh, about the film. Secondly, I'm gonna then pester you right. because I know you're a huge Thief fan and we've just lost James Khan. Oh yeah, we could talk a little bit about that. And right. and then I'm going to ask you questions because truly, I mean, I know that your twi- Twitter is probably a hellfire um, for you, but as a consumer of your Twitter, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy your contribution to the discourse. So I'm I'm like I've I've been I follow you, so I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. I can have a chat with Scott about all sorts of fun movies that he talks about and loves to talk about too. Because I think, you know, I'm also. Uh, I must say, in the, in the decade of your films, Sinister knocked my socks off. So I might start a decade ago and talk to you about Sinister and the Black Phone for me are like two wonderful sort of philosophical conversations. One of them is, in Sinister, is like the the crisis of being a filmmaker and the Black Phone is living in this world. <laughs> so I wondered if you were, when you and your great writing partner, see Robert Cargill, I wonder when you guys were formulating this and using Joe Hill's terrific short story as your basis, were you guys thinking of this as signposts in both of your careers? Because both of you really, you know, you'd had some other big pictures come out earlier. Um, Dead, yes, and still, and then obviously exorcism, Emily Rose, sinister drops. And it's just another level, you know, uh, in my mind. And now, coming back to the black phone, did it feel like signposting? Did it feel like that's where you were in your career? You know, I, I, I stopped thinking that way about, I stopped thinking about my career as any kind of a real progression or, or having any narrative view of my career. Um, after I made the day the earth stood still, you know, sinister was, uh, Sinister was, in a lot of ways was was the result of what happened to me personally as a result of making Dave Yerson. So I was in the exact situation. We wrote, I wrote basically the situation that I was in where just like Ellison Oswald, I had made this first thing. Uh, Emily Rose, I was big hit Wonder Boy. Everybody loved me. Everybody wanted me to do everything, you know, and then the follow up, uh, not so great and uh, and had a really terrible experience. And and I found myself uh at the time that we wrote Sinister, you know, I was not very employable as a director. I really felt like Alison Oswald, that fear of losing my status, losing my financial security, um, uh, all of it. And, and, and I was kind of working out uh, what was disappointing to me and myself, which was the level of anxiety and fear that I was feeling over things that, that were not the most important things in my life, you know? Yes. And, uh, and that's really where, where that movie came from. And and the decision that I made before making Sinister and what Sinister was the result of was, you know, making a decision that I would not think strategically about my career anymore. I just was like, I'm not gonna think about, you know, do I make a bigger movie? I wanna get to this level. I wanna make something at this budget. I want, you know, I, I just stopped doing that altogether. And I made a decision that I, I made a decision that, that there were two things that were gonna become mantras for me. One. I was never going to find myself at the end of somebody else's movie again, which yes. I didn't. And that's one of the reasons I stepped off of the, the, the sequel to Doctor Strange. And and secondly, uh, I I was going to make every movie as though it would be the last film I'd get to make. 
because one day it will be, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I, it's served me well so far, you know, and I, and I'm really proud of the films that I've made since then. So in the case of the black phone, you know, when I stepped off of, of off of uh, multiverse of madness, that script was a script that we had, that we had written um, during prep for, for multiverse of madness. And, and we did that because another writer was writing the first draft on, on that Marvel movie. And, I just had a big window of time. She, the writer was taking a, a, a terribly long time to get a draft done. And so we just went and wrote that script. And uh, and I wasn't sure if I would end up making it or not, even when we were, I was writing it to write it. And um, and of course, once we, once I did step off the Marvel movie, there it was. And it, and it seemed very clear to me like, oh, this is this is something I very much do want to make. This is a very personal screenplay and, and then just pulled the trigger and immediately went and did it. Um, so it wasn't any kind of, there was no strategy. There was no, um, there was no thought behind it other than at the time that we wrote the script, it was just very, a very personal thing inside of me um, that needed to be written, you know? And so we, so we wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love that. It reminds me of, I'm not sure if you've seen, Celine Sciamma did this beautiful lecture. Where she was describing how she writes a screenplay. And it's one of the first times, you know, being inspired by people like yourself and your great co-writer, it's one of the first times I've ever heard anyone put it out there as a way to approach writing. And I, and I wonder if you do something similar. Because she talks about having two pages on a script. On, on the left-hand page, say... There's all the things that need to happen in the movie. And then on the right-hand side, she writes down the scenes or the images or the moments or the influences or the music drops or whatever the case may be that she has to have in this thing to make it. And I feel right. like that in your films, like there's indelible images, indelible needle drops. There's these moments. And she says the trick is for a master like her too. <laughs> The trick is making all those things that you would die without them being in the movie, being as essential as the things that you have to do. And so I wonder, you know, hearing you talk about like the desire here and it's all about your own personal gratification and satisfaction. I think I, 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 I that really resonates for me. I wouldn't use the terms gratification or satisfaction. It, it, I, it's, it's definitely much more about need. Um, yeah. and I think that, you know, I don't know, I, I can't speak for other artists. I'm sure that there's a wide, uh, array of, of things that motivate artists work. For me, it does come out of a need, a need to express that I've always had a need to, a need to, um, and I think less than express is not even the right word. A need to, uh, to, um, pull something out to find some truth that is stirring inside of me, you know, that it, it, it seems to always come from there if it's any good. Yes. And, and in this case, in this case, you know, I'd been in therapy for three years prior to writing the black phone, dealing mostly with the violence of my childhood, the violence in my household, the violence in my neighborhood. Um, I just grew up in this, you know, working class, uh, North Denver, Colorado area. That's, that I've never seen put on film before in any way that was really unique. And, and, and I had spent a lot of years digging down from my earliest memories, you know, up through really through high school years and, and, and dealing with a lot of the, the violence of the, and the traumatic experiences that I had. 
you know, many of which are in the movie, some of which were too dark to put in the movie, frankly. Yeah. And, and what, what I did is I went to Cargill and I, and I, I said, you know, I've, I've been digging around this dirt so deeply and I feel like there's something here, you know? And I, I, I started by talking to him about the possibility of making something like an American 400 blows, you know, oh. the way that Francis Truffaut, you know, made this movie about his childhood, you know, growing up in, in, in France. And, and I, I was interested in that, but the more I looked at it, I was like, there's no story to my childhood that, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. And, and it didn't feel like it was enough. And Cargill and I had, had been talking about the black phone for, for as long as we had been partners. I gave it to him very early on in our working relationship. I read that short story the month it was published like 17 years ago. Yeah. And so the, the Eureka moment was, wait a minute, what if we took, you know, all this stuff that I'm thinking about my, this, this violent childhood, this neighborhood I grew up with and these kids that I knew and all that. And we combine it with the black phone. Cause it was a very short story and we never knew what to do with the black phone because it was not a ready-made movie. It was like, kind of like a good second act of the movie, you know? And, um, and uh, and he immediately got it. He said, "That's a great fucking idea." Sorry, I don't know if I can swear on the show. Or not. <laughs> you sure but, can. Uh, but he said, he said, he said, "That's a that's a great idea." So we we just went at. He got it very quickly, and we wrote the script in like six weeks. It just flowed. It was really easy to write. We wrote it very very quickly, and 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 uh, and I think that his you know his sort of massive contribution was primarily in the Gwen character. I, yeah. I don't remember if it was him him or I or both of us together where it's like, we got to get a girl in this movie, you know, but he had envisioned this younger sister. Uh, the, the, his opening descriptive, descriptive line of her is Gwen is the, is the sunshine in the apocalypse. <laughs> is how her she character is, is described. And, and, you know, and she steals, she's, she steals the movie. She's the strongest character in this world full of boys and men. And, um, and, and it was, it, you know, that was, that was, they all come out differently and they all come from different places. And, that, and the process for me is always slightly different, if not wildly different, but that's how that one happened. Well, just mindful of time, because I feel like you and I, if we started having a proper chin wag, we'd probably never get off this call. So I might just. Probably true. <laughs> so fair, enough, fair enough. I'll try <laughs> to be a little more succinct with my responses. I don't want you to be, I'm, t I'm enjoying it too much. So I'm just going to dive into it. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, Take a detour. James Kahn, Thief. Um, oh, God, that movie. What Walter wrote it best, which is like all of the titans that kind of walk the earth of our past, of, of our youth, they're kind of passing away. And and I was so moved by it. And, I'm, you know, we my podcast is One Heat Minute. So we've, you know, we're Michael Mann acolytes. And Thief is so important to me. And Jimmy Kahn is so important to me as a presence and an actor. And... And I saw you tweeting about it back and forth uh, as this was going on. And I, I'd love just, you know, to, to talk to you a little bit about James Kahn and particularly about Thief, because I know you love both of them so dearly. Well, it, it's it's an important movie in my past. And he's an important, you know, uh, actor and movie star in my past because I, you know, the, the saving grace in my upbringing was that uh, for all the various ways that I, I came from a fucked up family, my parents did love movies, mm. you know, and and we saw a lot of films i saw more films than kids my age ever got to see we would go sometimes to a you know we'd go to a matinee and then and then get food and go to a double feature at the drive-in and see three movies in one long day you know awesome. uh and and i remember for me it was it was a combination 
the, with James Conn, it was a combination of three different experiences. One was that my parents, you know, I was the right age for the, the, the invention of the VCR. You know, it's like I was young when it first it was happening and my parents got, immediately got, it, got a, a VHS player or I think it was a beta player and, and we're renting movies. And the, we watched The Godfather at least once a year you know, as, as I was, uh, you know, learn, starting to learn that there was more movies than the ones that you could just see in a theater and seeing these great films of the past, the Godfather was the one that was just constantly playing. So I, I learned that movie inside out and, and was blown away by it, by both parts one and two, but it, I went to the drive-in and saw Rollerball. Yeah. And so I saw dry, I saw Rollerball at the drive-in, and Rollerball. I think it's actually made for drive-ins. That movie. It feels yeah, like you should yeah, only it, be able to watch it in a drive-in, it's, it, where people can I honk do, their horns. I do think Rollerball is the consummate drive-in movie. I think that's probably true. <laughs> if I had to pick, well, you know, what's the ideal drive-in movie? It's Rollerball. It's perfect for that. And so, you know, here's this guy, this movie star, who's who's, uh, uh, you know, having this impression on me. And then I think I was. I saw Thief around the same time that uh, it was a late. It was later. Um, it, it could have been early college, but it, but but it wasn't. It was you know fairly early in, in Michael Mann's career. I had not seen uh, Manhunter, which I believe was first, but I had seen Michael Mann's uh, made-for-TV movie called The Jericho Mile, which I was obsessed with. I used to watch that over and over and over again when I was in early high school. Great movie. It's it, it's one of the great in that that it's was one the, of the best. That was one of the movies. It's one of the best sports movies filmmaker. ever, Scott. So now, wonderful. so when the came along, my dad had already seen it. He wanted me to see it, and uh, and and it, and I I still remember the experience of that movie being something that was so in it was so ineffably powerful to me because of this character. And and of course, looking back, once I went out, once I was in college, I became a philosophy student. I was like, oh, this is an existentialist movie. This is a this 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 is this this is a movie about about soul existential existence. <laughs> but there was something about Khan's embodiment of creating meaning in a meaningless universe that that spoke to me so powerfully. And and, uh, and so yeah, he was he 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 embodied. Uh, this kind of masculinity but he but there was always this guy deep philosophical attachment to it for me with him in in the things that he did and uh and so he and, and my dad was a pretty macho guy you know so there was something my dad loved james con fucking loved him maybe his favorite actor and so 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 the the imprint of that guy on on my early life and and on my life as a filmmaker and just you know uh what what i what i perceived movie stars to be was was indelible you know and 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 i think that that uh i think thief is probably you know uh it is it is one of the greatest films of its era and and the, and and also just if i can just you know the way that james Kahn embodied the physicality of that movie the heist itself and the non-dialogue heist and the realism of it and i'd never seen anything like that either i mean hundreds you know, hundreds of pounds of equipment and this guy who is so rigid and powerful and he's sh broad in his shoulders is just you know thwacking these huge metallic drills and ma magnetic drills onto things it's you know and just him sort of effortlessly doing it like it's I think that you're so right about the existential quality, but it's also got this blue blue collar 
get your hands yes. dirty quality that was that is and, and special. I, I when I think when I think of that movie, I always the, the you know I tend to do this with films. Like when I think of a like when I was thinking of Rollerball, I was thinking of James Caan, full body, crossing, doing the leg cross, skating around the corners, you know, with in his full uniform. And Rollerball, that's like the image that comes to mind with his team behind him. Um, and for Thief, the image that always comes to my mind is it's I think it's a fairly compressed kind of long lens close up of him, but it's after they've broken into the vault. And I believe his team is sort of gathering the money and he and the, the camera just lingers on him as he sits down and his face is all dirty and he's all filthy from from having broken in and ashen with 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 blackness and and he's smoking a cigarette. I, I love that. And, 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 and that that shot of him is that movie to me, you know, the, the sort of uh, the, there's a sense of satisfaction, there's a sense of meaning, there's a sense of purpose. And and it's just James Caan being a badass, you know. <laughs> and 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 it, there's something about that that is that character. Uh, and it, it you know and and it, Michael Mann at his best is is as good as it gets, you know. But for me, it's those it's the early Michael Mann movies that really have had the biggest impact on me, particularly the Jericho Mile, Manhunter, and Thief. Those those would pro- probably top my list of, of my favorites of his films. I was going to say Manhunter, the atmospherics of Manhunter, and your your film sinister with that christopher young score like there's a couple very very influential movie Uh, i was just gonna say i mean mean, maybe it's why i love them both so much is that they give they 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 set a tone and a mood and the this kind of incongruously like loud and deafening score that kind of makes you focus on all these micro gestures so special but look i just want to say i I, I thought the black phone was absolutely terrific i know we've probably got to run um in 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 a heartbeat but um Mason was an absolute rock star. Madeline was stunning, and your 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 leading villain, uh, uh, Mr. Hawk, really like he and Hugo Weaving have done the two best masks performances almost ever in my mind. <laughs> you know, like it's like yeah, you have to be yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to be so Titanic, a huge actor, to be just completely covered up and to do everything in gesture. And um, you know, without spoiling anything, uh, there is an image that you create in this movie of Ethan Hawke sitting in a chair that I will just never forget in my life. <laughs> I will just never... It, 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 is, it is a cigarette burn in my brain forever. And, uh, you know, to have such an indelible impact over many movies, but just to have, I, I think, truly one of the most iconic shots in, in you know, contemporary horror films, I, I, I applaud you and I just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been a oh, treat God bless to you. you. Yeah, I uh, and I already followed you on Twitter, so uh, <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're Twitter followers well, now. We can... Thanks so much. That was great interview i love oh i'm so so pleased i'm so pleased you take care and and again like i said congrats on all the success i can't wait for people in oz to get completely freaked out all right good good uh good on you (laughs) and uh you know i wish i wish everybody a good time watching the movie thank you so much Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts.